you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Acts chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will make sure that somebody gets one to you. Are we all good on Bibles? Anybody need anything? Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And we'll read on down through verse 31. Word of God says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would give us boldness. Lord God, sometimes we are timid. Sometimes we are afraid and intimidated. Sometimes we are worried about reactions that we'll receive when we preach the word of God, when we share the good news of Christ, when we exalt who you are, Lord. God, I pray that you would burn away all fear. I pray that you would burn away our doubt. I pray that you would burn away our timidity, Lord, in regards to preaching your word. Give us boldness, and we know that that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, so I pray that the Spirit would fill us up and make us bold so that we can be faithful witnesses to you and your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Deemer. Good morning, everybody. Wow, y'all asleep. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. All right. I just need to make sure you're listening before I actually start, you know. Um, it's good to see everyone this morning. We are just picking up right where we left off, continuing through this book of Acts, looking at the fact that God reigns. He reigns. The sovereignty of God and the gospel in the book of Acts is really kind of the theme of the whole book, is the sovereignty of God and the spread of the gospel. And, of course, God's sovereignty over that. And so... Um, kind of bring us up to speed where we're at right now. If you remember last week, Peter and John had met the very first resistance to the gospel. So up until what we read last week, they've been able to share the gospel and it's been relative it's been received relatively well on the day of Pentecost. There was no resistance. The Holy Spirit came in a powerful way and and 3,000 people came to Christ that day. And then they continued to preach We read in Acts um, chapter 3 that they were coming into the temple and they saw a lame man. Uh, He was healed and subsequently after being healed he was praising the Lord. 
I think like any of us would be doing if we were all of a sudden hadn't been able to walk for 40 years. Now we can. We, he's jumping around. He's testing those legs out now. He's praising the Lord and it draws a crowd. And Peter, of course, when there's a crowd there, says he's going to preach. And so he preaches, begins to preach the gospel to them. And as they're bringing that sermon to a conclusion, the rulers of the, of the, of the temple and the temple guard, they come and they take Peter and John into custody. Of course, that doesn't stop God's word because we read on that the number of believers came to about 5,000. So at least two more thousand people were saved that day. And so we see God's work. And last week we saw how Peter and John uh, acted in front of the, the council who they're meet before them. And they're telling them to stop preaching, stop teaching about Jesus, stop doing things in his name. And of course, Peter says, you know what? You can judge for yourself which is the wiser of the two courses to take here. I can either obey you or I can obey God. But as for us, we, we, we can't help but to speak about what we've seen and heard, what we've experienced. And so they left, and that's where we pick it up today. Right after they've left the, uh, the council, after being chastised, and after being told, don't you preach about Jesus anymore. Now, nothing physical happened to them at this first persecution. Remember, persecution comes in differing degrees. I, I wrote about that in the post last week. Persecution comes, can come, first of all, just intimidation. And that's kind of how it starts here. But we see in the book of Acts, it increases and goes to higher degrees as we progress through the book of Acts. So here they are. So what's the first thing, where's the first place they go after they've been told not to preach anymore? And so in verse 23, we see that when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now this word for friends, it actually literally means their own. They went to their own, which means either their relatives, their family, or their friends, or their close associates. That's what the word means. And so, obviously, they went to the church. The church is their family now. This is their body of believers, their family of faith. And they go directly to the church. First thing they do after they've been released. And I think we can see something from this. Uh, I think sometimes, if you're like me, when difficulty comes... I have a tendency, maybe you don't, I have a tendency to shut down and just go be with myself. When difficulty comes, I don't want to be around people. I want to just go get by myself and be quiet and not, let, not really let anybody else in. And kind of put up some walls, actually. And kind of put up some walls so I can keep people, so I don't have to be so vulnerable before people. But what we see Peter and John doing, the moment difficulty comes, their first reaction is to go to the family of faith. And we can learn something from that because that's what we should do when difficulty arises in our life. No matter what kind of difficulty it is, if it's persecution, if it's just difficulty in our marriages, difficulty with our kids, difficulty in whatever sort of venue, the first place we should go for comfort and help and for people to pray and to support us and to give us encouragement is the body of believers, is our family of faith. And that's what Peter and John did here. So that's the first place they went. And what's the first thing they do? The first thing they do is that they pray. The whole group together, in Acts 4, verse 24, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They decided to get together and pray. They didn't decide to go hide. Peter and John come in. They didn't say, okay, God, pack everything up. Put the hymnals in the boxes and let's go. All right? They didn't have hymnals, probably. I doubt it. All right, put, the, put, the, put everything up. Let's get out of here. Let's go find a cave. That's not what they did. Uh, they didn't. Come together and say, okay, let's vote on whether to obey the Sanhedrin or let's just obey God. What, what do you guys think? Let's put it to a church-wide vote. That's not what they did. They didn't uh, come together and say, okay, let's come up with some other methods of evangelism here. Because this, this evangelism method, it just causes too many ruffled feathers. 
Let's try a much more seeker-sensitive evangelism method from this point forward. That's not what they did. First thing they do when they meet persecution and difficulty and resistance is that together they pray. And you'll notice the word used here. It says they lifted their voices together. It means in one accord. Now, this doesn't mean they're all saying in unison these words. But together, this is what they're praying. Okay, probably someone's leading them in prayer. But together, this is what they're lifting up to the Lord. And we see unity in prayer. You know, there's lots of different things we can split hairs about that you might agree to disagree with me on, uh, whatever it is. But there's one thing that the, always should bring the body of believers together, and that is that we all know the need for prayer. And that we should always be unified around the need to be praying. And we see unity here as they come together and they pray. So today, what I want us to do is to look at this prayer. To look at this prayer and dissect this prayer and take some application from what the apostles and the other disciples, uh, believers did when they prayed to the Lord. And I want us to see what prayer is really supposed to be. And to, to help that, I've got an illustration this morning, really kind of stealing this illustration from, from John Piper on what prayer is. So, um, but I'm going to take it and make it, I'm, I'm going to Steveify it here a little bit and change it a little bit. Um, first of all, I want to know from the kids, what's the difference between, or what, what, what's this, first of all? This is a walkie-talkie. And what's this? A baby monitor, right? Now, these are similar technologies, okay? Similar technologies. They, I, I shouldn't even start to say what they do because I don't understand the technologies. But these are, somehow the sound gets from this other place to this other place without any wires, all right? And that's what's happening here in these, these technologies. Now, they're very different, though, aren't they? Would you go to war with this? No. You wouldn't go to war. Would you go to war with a walkie-talkie? Yeah. You'll go to battle if you've got a walkie-talkie so that you can communicate back with your commander, and he can give you instructions back, and you know what to do. A baby monitor, its function is simply so that the parents can hear the baby when the baby's just crying out and wanting something. Or wants its diaper changed, or wants something to eat, or fell out of the crib. I don't know. It wants something. Okay? The walkie-talkie is a two-way communication. It wants something too, but I want us to see a difference here. I think that sometimes we think about prayer like, like, it's, like it's a baby monitor, to be honest with you. God's our Father in heaven, which is true. We are His children on earth, which is true. But we, we just cry out to Him whenever we want something. Whenever our bellies aren't full. Whenever we're uncomfortable, when things aren't going right, and we treat God like he's on the other end of a baby monitor. And we're just wah, wah, wah. Not that we shouldn't pray to God and ask for things and, and cry out to him. The scriptures clearly tell us to cry out to God. But I wanted to see it as a different type of crying out. Because a walkie-talkie, if you're in a war, let me give one of the other kids a walkie-talkie here. Here, Jacob, hold on to that. Okay, a walkie-talkie, if you're in a war... And you've got a commander, and you know that you've got a mission. God's placed you on this earth for a mission, and we're in a spiritual battle here on the earth. Our job in prayer is to go to our Father and ask Him for things that help us accomplish the mission. And we cry out to God. I mean, when you read the Psalms, you hear David crying out a lot. But almost always, after he cries out to the Lord, he'll say something so that your glory so that your name can be heard, so that people will know about you. Our, our goal in life is to glorify God. So if we're in a war, and I'm your commanding officer, and 
Let's say you, you've got a mission to do, and all of a sudden you've come under fire and you've got some difficulties. What's something you might ask for? Go ahead and, and, and radio me. What do you need? He's frozen solid. He can't think of anything. You're under fire, buddy. You've got to make decisions quick. All right, military. Wait, where's, where's John? Military is just not an option, all right? Okay, so what's something you might ask for if you're out in the field? Okay, say it. Oh, it's not even on the right channel. All right. Okay, let's say it was on the right channel. Okay, you need backup. Okay, why? You need backup so that you can accomplish the mission. Okay, maybe you've run out of ammunition. We need ammunition to accomplish the mission. All right? <laughs> what are you laughing at? Okay, we need something so that we can accomplish the mission. Here, go ahead and give that back to me since it's really not working very well. I want us to see what the, what the apostles are praying here. They, they've come under fire. They've come under persecution. And if we look at the prayer here, it's not just, ah, why God, why, why us? Why, why is this happening? The prayer is God. Yes, we've come under fire. We've come under persecution. Now, do what you need to do in our lives so that we can boldly go and continue to witness for the gospel. We need to view prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie instead of a baby monitor or an intercom just to have our needs met. A wartime walkie-talkie so that we know how to live this life in a way that glorifies God and spreads the gospel. So I want us to look at this prayer. I want you to notice, first of all, in this prayer, um, it's broken into two sections, really. There's a section on praise, where they just praise God. It's the first part of the prayer. And the second part of the prayer is when they have petitions and they ask God for something. So praise and then petition. Now I think it's very interesting that the praise portion of this prayer takes up five verses and the petition portion takes up two verses. Now I'm not going to say that's some hard and fast ratio that you should praise five to one. But what I, am, what I do notice here is that they spend the bulk of this prayer just praising who God is. And then they get to the petition part and I don't think we quite do it like that. I think most of us, if you're like me, we get to the petitions pretty quickly. Okay, God, I need this. God, can you do this for this person? God, can you do this? And we don't spend a whole lot of our time in our prayer life just praising God for who he is. I mean, go read the Psalms. Most of the Psalms are prayers. If you read the Psalms, the bulk of the prayers is just praising God for who he is. Some of it is crying out to the Lord. But even in the crying out to the Lord, it's exalting God for his steadfast love, for his amazing grace, and it's just... That's what we see in the Scripture. So here we see these guys praising God first, and then they get to their petitions. So I'm going to look at these two elements of the passage today. And the first thing I want us to see, if this is working, if it's not, y'all just follow me back there, is that their praise is rooted in a few things. Y'all just go ahead and run it since it's not working. Okay, their praise is rooted in, number one, confidence in God's character and power. Confidence in God's character and power. Look at verse 24. And when they had heard it, what? When they had heard the report, they had heard about the persecution. When they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Their praise that they start this prayer off with is firmly rooted in who God is. Prayer that doesn't acknowledge or recognize or understand who God is, is weak and ineffective. Let me say that again. Prayer that doesn't acknowledge 
and recognize and understand who God is, is weak and ineffective prayer. Because if you don't understand who it is you're praying to, then what are you praying for? Is it to make yourself feel good? I, I, I watched, I was trying to find videos on prayer this week, and I found one, a man on the street interviewed a prayer, and they just interviewed a bunch of people about why do you pray, uh, who do you pray to. I was, and I was just amazed, even at the people who said they were believers, Christians, that just their purpose behind prayer or what they expected to see happen behind prayer, who it was they were praying to was just so shallow and so weak. And I think our prayer life oftentimes is very weak because we don't acknowledge, we don't even realize how big our God really is. It really affects our prayer life. So what do they praise about God? First, they praise him that he's sovereign. He's in control. He's not some aloof, absent landlord. He's totally and absolutely in control. I'll say this. I believe this with all my heart. A good grasp and acceptance of the doctrine of God's sovereignty will do wonders for your prayer life. A good understanding, good grasp of the doctrine of God's sovereignty will do wonders for your prayer life. That doesn't mean you have to wrap your mind totally around that mystery because it's impossible for you to wrap your mind totally around the mystery of God's sovereignty. But what it does mean is we read the scriptures, we see that he's sovereign, we accept it, we embrace it, and we pray to that God. But when we try to wait, explain it away and say, wait a second here, I, I understand God's sovereign, but, and we try to put our own logic beside the sovereignty of God, and that's what our prayer life is based on, it's going to be as weak as our understanding of God's sovereignty. The bigger we embrace what the Bible says about God's absolute, total control of this universe coming down to the very atoms in our body, the greater our prayer life is going to be. I guarantee it. You know, it's kind of like, um, we, we, I was thinking, I was trying to think of an illustration here. You, you have much more confidence when you know someone's in control. And so when we pray to God, we have much more confidence he's going to answer the prayers if we know that he's in total control. It's kind of like if you call 911, you want to know that the person on the other end is in control, that they've got that button that they can push to send out the ambulance or the firemen or, or everybody. I don't know. They've got, they've, got, they've got control of the situation. Okay, so that's, you have confidence there. I can call 911. Okay, things are fine because that person's got control. I kind of compare that to calling uh, tech support when you've got a computer. The person doesn't know what they're talking about on the other end of the line. They don't know any better than you do. They're just guessing. And you're like, I can guess just as good as you can on the other end of the line. Come on. And that's frustrating. Because that person, you don't feel like that person knows nothing. Okay, I haven't had a bad experience lately. I'm just trying to, you know, use this as an illustration. But the more we recognize and understand that our God is not just somewhat in control, He's not, a, he's not a God who wound up the universe and let it go and is waiting to see how it's all going to turn out. He's a God who's in absolute and total control. He has a perfect and planned out purpose for your life, for my life, for this whole universe. And he's in control. That does wonders for your prayer life when you accept that truth. I believe, again, that the strength of our prayer life will correspond directly to the strength of our grasp of God's sovereignty. I pulled out a book because I got to think about a guy named George Mueller. Do you know, y'all know who George Mueller is, was? Anybody? Show of hands, anybody? One back there. Thank you, Isaac. George Mueller was a great man of God who lived in England and is famous for his prayer life. Now, he ran orphanages uh, in England, and uh, he never took a salary, and he never asked for money 
to run these orphanages. And his prayer life was just, was one, became famous because he would just pray for what they needed and God would just supernaturally provide. And it happened all the time and it's documented and there's all kinds of, one of them is a, a book that he wrote called Answers to Prayer. And as I read through this book, I highlighted a lot of it. I went and looked back through it last night trying to think of one passage I could pull out just to share with you guys. But it's just filled with his absolute confidence in God's sovereignty. And his prayers were powerful because he knew God was absolutely sovereign. When he looked at the situation that his orphanage was in and he knew there wasn't food for tomorrow, he wasn't sitting here thinking, wow, God's in heaven trying to figure this out too. He knew his God was in control and God already had a plan, so he just asked for God's plan to happen. And it did. He had tremendous confidence in God's plans. I found this, I was looking for a passage in the book, but what I found when I picked it up again this morning was what I wrote in the back. Because I read this book a couple of years ago, and I said, I wrote here, During the time of reading this book, God has been in the process of potentially giving our church 16 acres of land and a building worth what is expected to be $2 million. It is not all said and done, but whether or not it happens, I am at great peace as I see God working through prayer. You know, we didn't do anything. To get, to deserve that land, the building out there, God's done that. He's sovereign. All I knew as I prayed and I read this book was that God has a plan. And I'm trusting in him to do his plan. If his plan was for us to be in this school for 20 more years, so be it. So be it. But his plan wasn't. And so he did some things that we totally didn't expect. I wrote on the other page this, a quote I got from John Piper. Oh, Lord, let us make a difference for you utterly disproportionate to who we are. Lord, let us make a difference for you utterly disproportionate to who we are. If our prayer life is only proportionate to, to who we are, uh, what I can accomplish, God, what you can do, it's, it's got to be a God-sized prayers. God, do something here that's utterly disproportionate to who we are so that when people look at it, they say, wow. God's at work there. That's what we'll get to here in a little bit. Because as these disciples ask for signs and wonders, what they're asking for is for God, for everyone outside looking and seeing that God's working. Not that there's something great about Peter. Not that there's something great about John. Not that there's something great about these apostles and these disciples. But that God is great and he does awesome things. And so when I think about the building over there on that road, my hope and my desire is that as people come visit, as people see it, they simply say, God is great. God is awesome has nothing to do with the people in there. Maybe some of y'all who are visiting can say, yeah, I can, I can second that. It had nothing to do with those people. It's a God thing. But it does have something to do with you because we're the ones that have to be praying. And God will work through our prayer life if we'll have a type of prayer that's totally confident in who he is. The other thing I want us to see here is they were, had confidence in God's promises and testimony. In verse 25 and 26, they say this as they're praying. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What they're doing here is they pray that section of scripture. If you may see it in the footnote in your Bible, they are quoting word for word Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2. They're quoting scripture as they pray. Their confidence is in God's character, but they also have confidence in what God has said, what God said he's going to do, 
what God has promised, what he has testified about in the Scripture. Again and again and again in this early part of Acts and throughout the whole book of Acts, we see the apostles and the disciples placing their confidence in God's Word. Peter has now preached twice. He'll preach again later. He's preached twice, and every time he brings the Scripture in, and he places his argument flat on the Scripture. He doesn't say, hey, based on human logic, here's what I think you guys should do. He just says, hey, here's the Word of God. Here's what God says is going to happen. Here's what has happened. And we have confidence in God's word, in his promises, and in his testimony. Doesn't this logically follow from God's sovereignty? If he is a sovereign master, that his word is absolutely true, trustworthy, and accurate. God had predicted that his Messiah, Jesus, would be railed against by the Gentiles and the Jewish people themselves. These kings and rulers, he had predicted this and it had happened. The believers, when they read this psalm, they easily see God's fulfilled promises here. Uh, in verse 27, it says, if you pay close attention, you'll see how this matches up very well with the previous two verses. Verse 27 says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Okay, earlier that psalm had talked about the Lord's anointed. That's Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod. Okay, when they say Herod, they're referring to the kings. In that psalm where it says the kings uh, are coming up against the anointed one. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate refers to the rulers in Psalm verse two, Psalm chapter 2. Along with the Gentiles. Of course it was the Romans. It was the soldiers that put him on the cross. And the people of Israel. The very people that they were being persecuted by now were the ones who had killed Christ. So God had predicted it all. So it wasn't a surprise to them that they were facing this persecution and that difficulties had come. What a comfort it is to have God's word. And you know what? We should take something from this. That we should regularly be praying God's word. We should pray God's word. Um, why not, if you're trying to have a prayer life that connects with God, why not just pray back his own words to him? Okay, I guarantee you, if you'll get in the practice of praying God's word, it'll strengthen your prayer life. It'll strengthen our church's prayer life. I love the fact that on the, on the song sheet today, all the songs, there was Psalm 30 was the second song we sang, song we sang. Psalm, what was the one we just sang? 115, okay? And then after we're done preaching here, there's another psalm we're going to sing. And we've sung God's Word today, and we're praying God's Word today, and we're preaching God's Word today. That's where our confidence is in God's promises, God's testimonies. And these believers, they knew. They knew that these threats of these kings and these rulers and the people of Israel and the Gentiles, it wasn't just something meant for Christ. They understood that it was happening to them as well. They were believers in Christ, therefore they were carrying out and continuing Christ's ministry. And in verse 29, they say, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak. They know that they're continuing the ministry of Christ, therefore these same rulers, kings, Gentiles, and people of Israel were going to persecute them as well. So we see here their confidence in God's word. And of course, if you look at Psalm 2, you'll see the very last lines of Psalm 2 is, Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. God's promises aren't that we're going to be free from persecution. Some people will take God's word and only pick out the parts that they really like because it makes you feel very comfortable. But God, Jesus promised, if you follow, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. That's a promise. 
from Jesus. How, do we stand on those promises? A lot of times we sing songs like standing on the promises of God. I think in our mind, the only promises we're standing on are the really happy promises. But you know what? There's some promises in there that the early church embraced, and that was that they were going to receive persecution. But they understood that, you know what? Man can kill this body, but I still have refuge in my Lord. Jesus said, don't fear him who can, can, can destroy the body. Fear him who can destroy your soul in hell. Fear, fear God. There's a great passage of Scripture, I know I'm going to quote it wrong, where Jesus talks about persecution, and he says, uh, some of you they will persecute, some of you they will bind up and put to prison, some of you they will kill. And then he says like a verse later, and not a, head on your hair, not a hair on your head will perish. Now you read that and you're going, what? You just said some of them are going to be put in prison, some are going to die, not a hair on your head is going to perish? I don't get that. It's because believers, as believers in Christ, we know that what happens to us physically is so minuscule compared to an eternity with Christ. Therefore, they can kill me. You can kill this body. You can destroy this body. You can do what they were doing to the apostles, what they will do. There will be apostles, there will be disciples killed here in the next few chapters of Acts. And you can kill them, but that does nothing to destroy their relationship with God. They still have refuge in God. And so you can stand on the hard promises too and know that even though God may have promised difficulty and he knows that difficulty is going to happen to his people, guess what? It's only for a short time. Joy will come in the morning. We may have to go through the night of difficulty, but joy will come in the morning. So we can stand confident in God's promises and in his testimony. Look in um, verse 28. Next thing I want us to see is that we can have confidence in God's plan and purpose. Verse 28 says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Of course, this is closely tied to, to who he is. This has become a recurring theme in Acts now. Divine sovereignty, yet mysteriously working alongside human responsibility. It's become a theme now. This Peter has said this like four times now. This divine sovereignty over the events of mankind, yet man is still responsible for the sins they commit against God. Ultimately, God is sovereign and he will work his purposes and his plans and man cannot thwart them. I'm reminded of Genesis 50, 20. You see this tension working out in the life of Joseph. You remember Joseph? He gets sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, he spends, he gets one hardship after another, one difficulty after another. He never loses hope in his God. And at the end, when he becomes one of the rulers in Egypt, and his brothers come to him, and they're like groveling. They're like, oh, now that they know this is Joseph, they're freaking out because they're thinking he's going to exact revenge on them. He says this in, in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Human responsibility. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So in this verse here, to do the people, these rulers, these Gentiles, these Jewish leaders had gathered together to do whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. His plan shows that he has a purpose. His hand shows his intimate involvement in it. He had a plan, but his hand was also involved in making sure everything happened exactly the way he wanted it to happen. So God's hand and his plan purposed for these things to happen. These believers, these friends, they didn't have a view of God that allowed them to just suppose that things happened haphazardly. They were absolutely confident that God was in perfect control, 
They were absolutely confident in his character and his power, in the promises of his word, and confident that he had a plan and a purpose. Is that how we view difficulty? Is that how we view the tough times we're going through? Do we understand that God is absolutely sovereign and he has a purpose and a plan behind every challenge you're facing? No matter how difficult, no matter how sinful the challenge might be that someone sinned against you or you're experiencing the consequences of your own sin. That God has a purpose behind it. If you're a believer in Christ, to work good out of that for your good and for his glory. Now it doesn't mean we go on sinning so God can just keep making me- good things out of our messes. Paul speaks pretty strongly against that in Romans. But we do know that when things and difficulties, hardships, failures come upon us, and they do, that we have a God who's still in control. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. And he's working it all together for your good and for his glory. But do we pray that way? Do we pray that way? Are we praying that God gets glory out of the situation I'm in? So that we can testify to his goodness. God, I don't understand these pain you're putting me through. I don't understand these difficulties. Even though I have deserved it because of my own sin, God, I don't get it. I don't understand all this. So God, work in me. Help me to just have faith in you. Give me wisdom to work through this. And when I'm through it on the other end, I'll praise you now, but I'll really praise you then as well. And when people come and I meet people who are going through similar difficulties, I can praise you and testify to how great you are and how steadfast your love is so that I can continue to share the gospel. I'm on mission, God. Or are we, God, take me out of this. What's wrong, God? What have I done wrong? What have I done to tick you off that you're letting me go through this? Which is it? I'm afraid our prayer life oftentimes is simply filled with whining instead of praising God for who he is. They haven't even gotten any prayer requests yet. They're just praising him. They haven't gotten to any, they haven't asked for anything yet. They are being persecuted. For all they know, the Sanhedrin's at the door listening. And they just praise God. They praise God. So I want to get to the prayer request. So let's do that here. Let's get to the prayer request here. Um, now, but first I want to notice some things they didn't request. I think I find it very interesting they didn't ask for some things. Okay, there's a couple of things they did ask for, two things that we'll show here in a second. But I want us to see a couple of things they didn't ask for. First of all, they didn't ask for the persecution to stop. Did you find that interesting? They didn't ask for deliverance. I find that interesting. They didn't ask for vengeance upon these Sanhedrin rulers. They didn't ask for that. I find that very interesting. Not that we shouldn't ask for deliverance when we're going through difficulty. I don't think that's the point here. I think the point is they had higher priorities to ask for in this passage than, God, get me out of this. God, get even with those people that are being so mean to me. They had much higher priorities. And we'll see those here in a second. But I can think of at least seven things, seven reasons why they didn't ask for deliverance. And I'm looking at the clock and I'm saying, I don't have time to share with you all seven reasons. But let's just put it, let me just... If you want the seven, you can come ask me later. But the main reason is there was a much higher priority, and that was that they were supposed to be witnessing. They were supposed to be spreading the gospel. And so there's two basic things they ask for. And so I want to go ahead and give you both of them, and we'll talk about them. First of all, they ask for God-given boldness to proclaim the message. 
God-given boldness to proclaim the message. Secondly, they asked for God-wrought wonders to confirm the message. Okay, first they're asking for boldness. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So that's the first thing they're asking for. God, give us boldness. Okay, here's hardship, persecution. You might be thinking, okay, let's ask for release from this hardship and persecution. No, they're saying, give us boldness in the midst of this. They knew their Lord's words, that they would be persecuted. I think by this time they've also learned what Jesus, what they see in Christ. And Jesus says, for um, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. They now see joy at the end of persecution. They now see joy on the other side of persecution. And so they're not going to say, hey, get us out of this. They're going to say, give us boldness as we go through this, and then we're going to have great joy. They wanted boldness to be able to handle, to look upon uh, this situation. It says here, Lord, look upon, meaning, Lord, take note. You keep the record. It's not for us to keep a record of wrong. It's not for us to keep a check mark. Well, so-and-so treated me like this, and so-and-so treated me like this. And it's not for us to keep a record either here or on paper. We don't keep records on paper. We keep records right here. So-and-so treated me this way. So-and-so treated me this way. And we keep a record of wrong. And they're saying, God, you take note. You take it. This is yours. Take note of what they've said. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm releasing it over to you. I'm not going to worry about what someone has said about me, what someone said to me, or how someone's treated me. That's not for me to worry about. You're the God of justice. You'll handle that. God, you'll be my defender, so, so I'm leaving that to you. God, you take note. We're unjust judges. He's not. They could have been angry. They could have said, God, just smite these people. I like that word. Don't you smite. Just smite them. All right? Good, good King James word there. Smite. Smite, smote, smitten, whatever. Smite. Get rid of these people. But you know what? I'm guessing probably, I don't know this for sure. It's a little bit of conjecture, but I'm guessing that on that Sanhedrin council of 71 men, there was a young man by the name of Saul sitting right there who saw the boldness, who will again see boldness, and then he will see the boldness of Stephen, and he will preside over the death of that very man, Stephen. But this witness of the apostles and their reaction to persecution, I think, is probably doing something in his heart. And then this same Paul will endure persecutions way beyond what they're going through down the road. And he didn't see these apostles just, just railing against them. God is the God of justice. God is the God who will take care of those who have done wrong to us. And it says... Lord, look upon the threats. Grant your servants to continue to speak. The word there is slaves. Earlier in the passage, I skipped over this in my notes unintentionally. Earlier in the passage, it talks about God. It says he's sovereign, Lord. It talks about how he's Lord. The word there isn't the normal word used for Lord in, in the New Testament, for the Lord. Usually it's kurios, but it's not used here. It's a different word for Lord, which refers to a slave master. So these guys are praying to a slave master. And you may think, well, that has negative connotations in our mind. But for them, all they were simply saying was, God, we're going to do whatever you want. If you take us through fire, we're still serving you. Because you're the master, you're king, you're ruler, you're the absolute authority. Who are we to question you, God? You're the master. We're the slaves. We're slaves to you out of joy. We've identified ourselves with Christ. We are joyfully your servants and your slaves. And if you take us through fire, so be it. We go through fire. 
We serve you, God. We love you. We are your slaves. They wanted to carry out their witness. They wanted to continue to speak. They wanted the Holy Spirit to continue to enable them to speak. And they also wanted him to continue to confirm the message. Verse 30, while, you're out, while, you're, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay? Your hand. Okay? They recognized that these signs and wonders were not their hand. Stretch out your hand, God. Stretch out your hand and continue to confirm the message. Continue to do signs and wonders. Okay? I've shared this before. The apostles came with signs and wonders to confirm that the message that they were bringing was Christ's message. And so no longer do we need signs and wonders to confirm the message. It's not saying God can't do signs and wonders anymore. I've heard too many stories of people being healed and signs and wonders happening to believe they don't happen anymore. But we don't need them anymore to confirm the message, but the apostles did. God confirmed the message of the apostles. It's now written down for us. And we no longer need that confirmation. But we can still pray for God to confirm his message in the hearts of people in supernatural ways. Okay? The, the word stands on its own. But we can ask for God. God, do something in so-and-so's life so they can hear the gospel. God, just like I said earlier, God, this building out here, okay, it's not really a sign and wonder. It's pretty spectacular, but it's not a sign and wonder. If it had popped up like in, like in one day, that would have been a sign and wonder. But it didn't. Okay, so we can look out there, though, but we can still say this is points to God. This points to God. This points to His work in our church. And that's what we should be praying for, for people to see God at work in our church. See God doing things that only He can do. That's the very nature of what the word sign means. A sign and wonder points to something. It points to God. So that's it. That's all they requested. To be bold. To witness. And for God to keep confirming it. Okay? They didn't ask for safety or deliverance, just boldness in the face of danger. They asked for God's power to confirm the message. Not for God's power to strike the enemies. They asked for God's power and supernatural power just to confirm the message. And so that's what we see here. What a message it is. The gospel message. So what do we take from this? I want to bring us to a conclusion here. What do we... What do we take from this? Do we pray like this? I, if we would, I bet we'd see some pretty earth-shaking things begin to happen. Literally, in this passage, the earth shook. Because they pray, they ask for the witness, God confirms it through a supernatural sign. You'll notice that the answer to their prayer comes immediately. Okay, look at verse um, 31. It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together shook. It was shaken. That's the supernatural sign and wonder. Okay, and then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? Continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Those were the two things they asked for. The sign and the boldness. And they got it immediately. Now, in a more metaphorical way, I think that if we pray to God like these apostles prayed, and that is praising Him, um, praying His word to Him, and just asking for Him to do something in our lives that allows us to witness to others, Walkie-talkie fashion. God, I'm on mission. Gospel, I've got to get it out there. How do I do it, Lord? Give me boldness. Lord, I just know how much I need boldness. I lack boldness like you wouldn't believe, all right? I just, I, I can be bold if this thing's on my head and I'm standing up here, but when I'm standing one-on-one with a person on the corner, I'm not bold anymore. 
And I need boldness. I need God to give me boldness. And I need to be praying for boldness instead of asking him for my petty things and praying more for more boldness. I don't spend enough time praying for boldness. I want him to shake this place, shake us up, get us uncomfortable. Don't literally shake it because we don't have insurance for some of the school stuff here, but shake this place. Shake us up. What is in your life right now that God needs to shake you and shake me and say, stop whining. I'm in control. I've got things handled. You start being on mission for me and pray that I will give you the power and the strength to be on mission for me. And then you'll see how all those trials and tribulations work out in my plan and they become an opportunity to witness. And we need to pray that way, that God will use everything we're going through as an opportunity to witness. That God will use my cancer as an opportunity to witness. That God will use my difficulties in my marriage as an opportunity to witness. That God will use my difficulties at my workplace as an opportunity to witness. Do we pray that? But we just pray, God, get rid of the cancer. Fix my job's, my boss's attitude. Fix my marriage. Certainly pray those things. Pray that God heals. Pray that God repairs relationships. But guess what? You're going through it for a purpose and a season for a reason. And so ask God to use it for his glory so that he, his gospel message can get out to somebody who needs it. To somebody who desperately needs to hear the gospel message. It may be your persecutor. It may be the Saul sitting in your room. That may be the person who needs to hear, see how you react and hear the gospel through your actions. So let's pray this morning. We should bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to pray Psalm 145. I have meditated upon this psalm this morning, and now I just want to pray it. And that will be how we conclude, and we'll conclude with, we'll just conclude with one song. Okay, Mark? Let's pray. Everyone bow your heads and close your eyes. I will extol you, my God, my King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. And your greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Oh, the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, you are gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, you are good to all. And your mercy is over all that you've made. All your works will give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints will bless you. You'll speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to our children, the children of man, your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom, O Lord, is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Lord, you uphold all who are falling and you raise up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look upon you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Lord, you are righteous in all your ways and kind in all your works. Lord, you are near to all who call upon you, to all who call upon you in truth. 
you fulfill the desire of those who fear you, who hear you hear our cry and save us. Lord, you preserve all who love you, but the wicked you will destroy. Our mouths will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless your holy name forever and ever. Amen.